0: This is the last episode of the season. So a huge thanks to everyone who's listened to the show so far. There will be a new season. So make sure you subscribe to get the first episode when it launches. Thank you to the thousands of you who have listened to the season. And especially to the one anonymous person who's left a review. You are literally one of thousands of people. and uh, well, that makes you special. So email me. I'd love to say thanks. And please, if you enjoyed the season, take 60 seconds to leave a review. It's so boring to ask but it means the world. And each review makes such a big difference to make sure the podcast actually is found by people uh, and continues to reach people and make a difference.
1: I would say, well, what if I had a billion dollars? What would I do? I would lay out all the things they would do. And it turned out that when you get down to actually trying to do them, you didn't need a billion dollars to do it. The gating factors were time and other things and not a billion dollars.
0: Welcome to the Out of Hours podcast, the podcast for people who are creating things they think should exist in the world. I'm Georgia Ritter, founder of outofhours.org, a community for people with side projects. I believe that everyone has a great idea, and working on things we care about can help us be more creative, more resilient, and more confident. There are barriers that stop us from starting. Sometimes time, money, or network, but also self-belief, not knowing where to start and wondering what other people might think. On this show, I'll explore the stories of people who have followed their curiosity, been brave, and started a side project, only to turn it into something much bigger than they ever thought possible. I'll explore the stories of non-profits, businesses, creative projects and social movements to understand the practical first steps they took, the doors these small ideas can open and the magic that happens when you start taking your own ideas seriously. Today on the podcast we have Kevin Kelly, the founding editor of Wired magazine. He co-founded Wired in 1993 and then served as its executive editor for the first seven years. Kevin Kelly may be one of the most eclectic people you'll ever meet. He's written a New York Times bestseller on technology, The Inevitable, and written books on the economy and on decentralization. He was also the publisher and editor of The Whole Earth Catalogue, an American counterculture magazine. He's also co-chair of the Long Now Foundation, which aims to provide a counterpoint to what it views as today's faster, cheaper mindset and to promote slower, better thinking. He also founded the popular Cool Tools website, very hard to say Cool Tools without sounding not very cool. And a chance meeting with Matt Groening inspired the creator of Futurama and The Simpsons to include Kevin's death clock, which we talk about in this episode, in one of the episodes of his cartoon Futurama. Kevin Kelly also has another side project spanning over the last 50 years, where he's traveled to 35 Asian countries photographing the disappearing cultural traditions. And recently he put his curated works in a book called Vanishing Asia. Today, we talk about Vanishing Asia, and we also talk about everything from how and why he writes, and why he's different from Neil Stevenson, who has to write every day. We also talk about why he's interested in crypto and projects that don't make sense, why he believes the center of gravity of culture will move to Asia, why becoming too big as a company or too good as a skill holds you back, and why he wants to be a YouTube star. I hope you enjoy. So you're on the Tim Ferriss show a
2: while back and I think he referred to you as the most interesting man in the world, which is a great title. Um, (laughs) um, But from what I can see, you're also the most curious man in the world. And you were kind of doing your own thing and being an individual and Mm -hmm. um, following your curiosities and interests way before it was cool, way before we heard (laughs) the phrase creator economy. So I guess the first question is, where did you get that bravery? Mm. And instead, just kind of follow your curiosity. And has it ever been hard to do that?
1: Mm. I have to say, th- th- thank you for um, these great questions and for having me. It's my privilege to be here. So, my story um, in many ways was um, liberated by my encounter with the Whole Earth catalog in um, the late 60s and around 1969 or so. And um, a lot of what's going on now is a echo of the kind of, of stuff that happened in the sixties where you were kind of, there was, there was a whole dropout aesthetic at that moment and go and rebuild something and do your, do your own thing. I wish I could have attributed this to my own, you know, um, lone genius, but, but in fact there was a sceneus going on. There was, there was a scene happening and I was, susceptible to it i i it, it worked on me and it, and it kind of gave me permission because there were other people who were doing it to great effect and so I had role models to to believe that that was possible at the time you know I was in a very advanced college prep high school where I would say ninety eight percent of my class of of I don't know, five or 600 people went on to college and was, and, you know, was taking the AP courses and everything, which I was doing. And so dropping out or not going at that time, there was no gap year. There was no internship. And it was, um, but there was the whole Earth catalog. So so that was my inspiration, which was um, a little permission slip that said, this is possible. It's possible to do this. And my um, expectation. At that time, I would be perpetually poor in terms of money. And then I would, you know, if I imagine myself, I'd be living on somewhere in the country with the little house and just doing whatever it was. And that that would be perfectly fine with me. So I I had very little expectation of monetary success. And that was fine because my hero was uh, Henry David Thoreau the guy on Walden who lived on the side and built his own house. And so that was my interest. I wanted to build my own house. I wanted to make my own stuff. And, and then I wouldn't have very much money, but I would have great satisfaction. So that was my kind of expectation. It, it turned out quite unexpectedly that the entire culture moved to this, this sort of entrepreneurial spirit. Because again, when I was growing up in the 50s and 60s, um, if you encountered an adult who told you that they were involved in a startup that was code for that they were unemployed. Mm -hmm. That was, that was not something that people drooled over or, Oh, well, well, wow! tell me about it. This is like, Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. (laughs) This was people who, people who quit their jobs to do a startup were pitied in a certain sense. It was not at all because the success rate was low and, and, they were often small. They didn't go very far. But the, the, the real prize was always to work for, you know, Kodak or Xerox or the big companies. That changed in with the coming of tech, where now every single person graduating hopes to do their own startup at least once, maybe twice. Maybe you'd be a serial entrepreneur. And so there was a shift where were the kinds of um the kinds of risks the kind of go it or your own became the preferred um mode and so i was very lucky because i was already in that mode from the beginning but um and i did you know and i did start my couple of my own businesses which i sold and, and did some magazines before wired which was really the kind of uh, part of the genesis of Wired was the original five editors, or those five editorial people. And each one of us had started our own magazine before Wired. So Wired was our at least our second magazine that we had done, which was a very different mindset than if you take five people who used to work for magazines and come. No, each of us had gone through the process of starting our own magazine and was very aware of... Difficulty, the the risks, what you needed to do in order to accomplish stuff, and so that was part of the I think part of the success of Wired in 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 that time was that um, we were do it yourselfers by and large. So so I attribute you know Stuart Brand and the Horth catalog with rehearsing this and getting this early. And In fact, it, I think the influence is on the Kellys beyond me. I think he influenced an entire generation of hippies who dropped out and did their own thing and turned out that that was like by far the best business school for a generation than anything. So you had all these long hair people who were dropouts and they were making candles and macrame little businesses, but they were getting business skills and they were prepped for this coming tech thing. And they just dived into it and really kind of seeded this idea that of doing a startup as 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 a thing that really was an expression of your own personality
2: there's a few things i want to ask you on that i think the first thing i just want to go back to is you saying that you went into it with a kind of intentionally low expectation of monetary reward
1: yeah um,
2: which i think is different probably to a lot of people today um, both entrepreneurs and creators because I think there is now a bit more of a narrative around this is a way to make money. This is a, and there is a bit of a narrative around it being more fulfilling and more aligned with passions, but it definitely still is seen as a kind of something where you can earn good money. And I'm curious when you look back at that time, do you, do you, do you credit that attitude with ironically, as you say, with kind of some of your successes, or do you think, you know, whether you're going into it, looking to earn money or not earn money, you would have ended up in a similar
1: phase. Um, I, I think that there are several things about now. Now, one of the great benefits that we have gained from technology is that there is this tool set that allow individuals to have far more success than they could in the 1960s and seventies, it was a lot more difficult. So that expectation was a realistic expectation. Whereas now you can realistically expect to have more success because we have changed the tool set. We have access to tools. A lot of the stuff that the whole earth catalog was trying to do has succeeded. that. That being said, I, 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 I think, um, I think there is way too much focus on money in general because it's boring, because it's easy to make money and hard to make meaning. In a certain sense, I think money is kind of overrated, to put it mildly, as a measure of success. It is a means, just like I like Tim O'Reilly's metaphor. It's like gasoline. You need it in your engine to get somewhere, but the purpose is not to arrive and get gasoline somewhere it's you don't want more gasoline just to have gasoline you want it's a means and so um so so i I think that um there are two mind tricks one is to assume that you don't have any won't have money find your contentment in other things and secondly is to pretend that you have a billion dollars which is often what i would do when i had nothing I would say, well, what if I had a billion dollars? What, what would I do? Um, and I would lay out all the things they would do. And it turned out that when you get down to actually trying to do them, you didn't need a billion dollars <laughs> to do it. That the gating factors were time and other things and not a billion dollars. Um, I, I first got a sense of that when I was traveling in these very far remote exotic places. And there was occasionally, um, a very occasionally, a tour group that would come by. And they were older people, and they had money, and they would have guides and cars and all kinds of stuff, which was I was very kind of envious of um, at one level. But in, if I had any conversations with them, they would hear what I'm doing, and they would all just lament the fact that they wished they could be doing what I was doing. I had no money, but I had time, and I was just there for, and I was going really deep. And they were saying, "Oh, I wish, you know." So they 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 had they had more money than time, and I had more time than money. And of the two, it was much much more valuable to have the time than money. So I could see that even that even there, having the money did not get them what even they were seeking, what what they were even coming for, and that in fact, having less money kind of required or demanded or resulted in a better experience so that was my first kind of hint that striving for monetary success was not really going to get what it is that I wanted and so um i would say that for the young people today is yes you need money to do things but probably not as much as you think and secondly um while there are some people, like Warren Buffett, whose entire thrill is making more money, that's fine, but most people aren't ultimately satisfied with just that and that you should think about your other metrics of success and what it is that you're going because it's probable that having a lot of money is not going to help you and may actually hinder you from that.
2: I want to go into some of those Exercises and and techniques that you've used Mm -hmm. because I think sometimes it's a classic thing. It's like if you had a million dollars, what would you do with it? And actually, sometimes that can make people feel quite overwhelmed because they think, I don't know. Like then it's that same pressure of like, what is your passion with a capital P? And actually, sometimes people don't have the answer to that. Did did you find that? Most people don't. Yeah. Did you find that an easy thing to answer? I
1: I I did in a certain sense because I didn't really even ask the question, but. I've come to, to understand, just with my own children, that the admonishment to find your passion and your bliss, and then you know, everything sail from there, can be paralyzing. And so I have kind of, in my own kind of advice and experience, I've changed my my advice. And, and I think the thing that I would recommend people is that they um, master something first. Even if it's not your passion, it's just to come to be the best in something. If it's if you're working at Trader Joe's and you're filling stock, like you want to become the best stock filler they've ever seen. And in that mastery, in that that mastery, you begin to see what works for you and you can begin to drift towards, first of all, you become a dispensable. Everybody wants you there. They'll give you new opportunities. And when those new opportunities come along, you begin to drift towards those that are really suited to you. And if you keep extending that mastery or shifting or migrating it, eventually you will come to that place where you're the best and there's nobody else and that's sort of where you want to be. So it's it's I think it is too hard for people when they're young especially to know what it is that they're really really great at, to have that thing, to even experience. And so I think for me in my own experience the solution is to really become the best at something. And it almost doesn't matter what it is as long as you can stand it and put your enthusiasm into it it may not and, and understand that this is a place to start. So if you talk if you read anybody's biography that you consider and admire, it is very, very uncommon that they started where they ended up. It is very, very common for them to have a very meandering, detoured backtracking, sidestepping life on their path to get there, Um, you know. And that's likely to be your life as well. Where you're starting doesn't matter so much as long as you are moving towards more of yourself.
2: So that's kind of the Cal Newport thing, right? That's his his kind of line of argument. But it conflicts a bit with something that – I really liked that I heard you say, which is this idea that young people shouldn't do this thing of early optimization. I think that was your phrase. Um, and it meant yeah. they shouldn't-
1: Premature, premature op- optimization. Oh, okay,
2: it. okay. That feels like different advice because in that case, it's like you're kind of keeping things broad um, rather than trying to optimize and get better at one particular thing. Whereas mastery is getting better at one particular thing. How do you kind of reconcile those two ways of thinking?
1: Yeah, well, mastery is not optimization in that sense. Ma- mastery is um, mastery is um, um, what's the word I want?
2: Um, I guess you're not stuck in one. When you're mastering something, you're not
1: yeah. Yeah, optimization in in my in my head. Is 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 that you're at the peak? You can't go any higher. Mm. Mastery is much more of a, of of an ongoing process, where you are, um, you know, mastering something. You're putting your thousand hours, ten thousand hours, and you 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 are you you are having deliberate practice. You are moving forward mm. in, in a very deliberate way. It's it's a forward motion, rather than coming to a peak. And and peaking is what you don't want to do too early. And because the, the the thing about a optimization, and this is my argument against it, is that um, to get off of optimization, you have to devolve. You have to go in the opposite direction, where you become less perfect, less masterful, less um, rich, whatever it is. And and that is a very very difficult um, process to go down. And so you have occasionally people like Tiger Woods who decides to go, you know, to, to forget everything you knew and kind of relearn everything. That's, that's what it takes. It's, it's a very, very difficult thing for people who are used to always going uphill and becoming more excellent. You're becoming less excellent. Mm. That's, that's a, that's a real job, but, but it may be needed in, in your life at some point. And so I, I think that is another skill that is often wrapped up in, um, being inefficient and wasting time and goofing off and slack and vacation, which is another reason why I'm a huge fan of all those, um, because in small doses, they allow you to not get stuck, to, to go in the opposite direction, to not always being more productive. So, so, so I think you have to have very deliberate, unproduc- unproductive moments where you are allowing yourself to get off of that false optima. Mm.
2: Do you do anything like intention <clears throat> sorry, I'm ill, which is why I keep coughing. Um do you do anything intentionally to get off that kind of treadmill of self-optimization or productivity?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I do. So this year I decided my my project along those lines was to do a drawing every day, art every day. And <laughs> it's like you know, economically, there's no reason for me to do the art. Uh, more importantly, I have literally no idea what I'm going to do when I sit down. I have like a blank thing. It's like, okay, universe, what is it today? I have, and I'm kind of channeling whatever it is, and um, but something something is going on in that. It's not just drawing. I'm rehearsing things I'm thinking about other things at the same time there's uh it's it's a way to allow the unconscious to work it's it's a way to access that it's so so that so that what I draw kind of spills onto other things later on that I'm writing about and so um so so that is a very deliberate practice in that sense of Um, you know, other people do diaries, they record your dreams. Those are kind of similar things, not trying to optimize what you've already done or what you're doing, but you're trying to listen to other signals that aren't optimized.
2: Mm. It's not quite the same thing as a beginner's mindset, but it kind of has a similar thing, which is like, I spoke to David Heinemeyer Hansen. who's the creator of Ruby on Rails and runs Basecamp. And he was saying a similar kind of thing, which is that he needs to kind of put himself actively into that kind of beginner's mindset. Because it is so easy to get kind of, I think he talks about it in terms of like the ego, which is, you know, it's easy to get trapped up and basically believe your own bullshit and kind of be like, yeah, I'm really good at this thing. And then you just get really, you're in a kind of preservation state where all you're doing is trying to like protect the thing that you have built as opposed to start from scratch.
1: Right, right. I also tried to learn one new skill a year. you know, the year it was welding and then I'm working on um, SketchUp. SketchUp is three D modeling and now I'm trying to do some crypto stuff. That that's another again, it's for enjoyment, but that you you're putting your putting myself in the beginner's mind where, where you know I don't know anything and I'm having to, to learn things. But uh, but um, I, I, I I agree with David that I think this has huge applications to an organization, a company. And that is is that um, I, I believe that the reason why startups, again, going back to startups, are so essential and so, and so vibrant and so powerful. And why this next big platform that we're headed towards, the thing after smartphones, which I think are smart glasses, why it's very, very likely that, they'll be it'll be dominated by one big company and that company does not exist right now it's not facebook it's not google it's very likely to be a startup and it's because the more successful a company is the more that success imprisons them okay because they can't afford to operate down at the margins where the startup New technology is coming so in the beginning the new technology is unproven it doesn't work very good it barely meets the minimal viable level of satisfaction it's prone it's unregulated i mean it's maybe in the gray area it's um and it's not very profitable so why would any sane business person allow you to operate and do a whole lot of money at that really marginal place where death Is near and most of the startups are gonna fail it's crazy so you can't if you're running a big billion-dollar company you can't afford to figure out things And so what you'll do is you'll take a bunch of money and you'll say let's invest let's buy our way through and the problem is is that um, money doesn't really buy solutions to the problems if they could, the big companies would just purchase those solutions. It requires ingenious, dedicated, whole new ideas that no amount of money you going to buy, that you're going to just have to generate on your own a great personal expense of, t- of time and ingenuity. And that's the domain of startups. So it's inevitable that startups are going to be working on the disruptive technologies because the big companies are imprisoned by their success and they can't go down. They can't reverse. They can't afford to inhabit that domain where things are undecided and you don't know what to call it. But a startup can work in that place where nobody has any names for what they're doing. You know, trying to describe what some of these crypto people are doing, it's like, uh, there's not it, it doesn't make any sense there's no words for it that's exactly where the new stuff happens and that's some of my advice to people and particularly in the arts or creative areas is you want to be in the long term you want to be working on something that nobody has a name for what it is that you're doing where it's very hard to describe what it is that you're doing because that is where the new stuff will be happening.
2: There's always about five things I want to ask you. You can ask, answer either of these. One is um, what is exciting you most about crypto at the moment? And then the second one is do you think that companies, um, like if you look back at Wired, for example, um, do any companies manage to keep that kind of, you know, Jeff Bezos calls it day one kind of mentality?
1: No. Uh, the the larger the company gets, the harder and harder it it, it becomes to remain that agile and day one ish. I mean, in some respects, um, Amazon has done a remarkable job in trying to keep that, but it's it's it it's inevitable that um, it ossifies around its successes, and. That's why I'm not very uh, worried about these large companies and why I think the idea of breaking them up is a total romantic fantasy um, that's uh, not very effective and not needed because these large companies have a very limited time where they're actually dominant because they're going to be susceptible to these other startups coming along. And um, they're not going to go away. Microsoft is still here, but Microsoft is no longer that, that dom- in that dominant position. They can still be large, but not dominant. And that's what people are concerned about, is your dominance. And so uh, th- that dominance is very ephemeral. I think it's actually very good. I think we need um, temporary monopolies, temporary natural monopolies. I think they're good for the whole ecosystem. And the reason why I'm not worried about them is because they're not going to last long. They're, they're 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 limited by the, the rate of change and the next big thing that comes along is going to come from outside of them so the next big thing is not going to be a social uh, media company that's not going to displace um facebook it's going to be a gaming company you know it's going to come from the outside so um so 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 that Bigness, I I think there's a natural limiting thing to businesses and businesses uh, um, will get large and they will not be able to do the next new thing and something else will come along to dominate. And that's the kind of the natural ecological sequence.
2: Yeah, I think it's very interesting. because I think there's a lot of pressure on new companies to kind of have a positioning statement or know their position in the market or know the audience and things that are quite, based on what's happening now, other people contextualizing them within an existing framework. And it can be, and there's probably quite a fine line between companies that are doing something that's so new that, as you say, you can't put a name to it or you can't really describe it and companies that are just not creating value. How would you differentiate those two things? And are there any examples that you can think of that are in the first category? So ones that are really genuinely creating something amazing and new that you can't put a name to that is valuable?
1: that's the thing that line between you're you're so new that there's no word for it and you're completely useless <laughs> is is <laughs> very very fine and that's the reason why there's such a huge failure there in this territory is because it, it's hard to tell mm. crypto is going to be a great example it may be that um a lot of the stuff being tried is is just about greed and it's gonna fall, collapse at some point. It's very, very hard to tell. And um, you know, a new artist doing something—is this like, are we gonna remember this, or is this gonna be forgotten? It is very hard to tell. And the thing about the artist is that, in some senses, you do have to pay attention to that. I Many other times, you kind of are ignoring it. You're just kind of going along. So, so. Um, there's a lot of artists who made a lot of really forgettable art before they figured out the right thing to do for them. Um, and so if you told them that they should have quit while they were making art that nobody wanted, they might not have gotten to where they were going. So, so I think... You have to also sometimes pay that price of wasting cycles of producing something that someone doesn't want and see that as part of that path that you need to get to to arrive at that. So that goes back to this kind of expectation in terms of an individual where, where the act and the process of making it has to bring you satisfaction alone. That's harder to argue for a business, but but there has to be some value in what you're doing, internal value, so that you can kind of keep going through that period where it doesn't really make any sense. Mm. Besides just making money, there has to be some pleasure or you can be having some customers that you're serving and you're happy that those people like you, maybe that's not enough, but at least you have that satisfaction in serving those customers. So so I think there has to be some internal reward to get you through those periods of time that I think are inevitable in any kind of creative process.
2: The way you talk about it, it explains it as like entrepreneurship and art are just two sides of the same coin in yes. the sense that right. you know, someone who understands art would never say to an artist, yeah, but what's the value in that? Or, you know, right. you just wouldn't provide you wouldn't you wouldn't expect that because there's a there's a level right, of abstraction right, right. to it. Whereas right. I think people tend to and, and possibly because you know they're taking investors' money and you know there are expectations and things like that, but you don't tend to look at businesses in the same way as if they're, you know, artists.
1: Right. I, I view them much more as personal expressions.
2: Mm.
1: Ask any VC and they will tell you that they do not invest into companies. They invest into people. Yeah. they they meet someone and they're saying, yeah, you have this idea now, but I have no idea whether this idea is going to work, but I like you, I, I'm, I, I believe that you're going to express your values and your drive in some ways. And I'm in favor of supporting that. And then we'll figure out what it is that you actually do to make money. And so it, it is It is an expression. I learned that in the magazine world where magazines, people don't know it, but whether they're looking through a magazine, whether they like a magazine or not, what they're saying is the magazine is an expression of the editor's personality and their extent and their worldview. And it's kind of buried in deep, but that's what you're kind of responding to in many ways. And that's why some magazines have, have can have a great run. Why are they having a great run? Well, there's one or two editors there. And what you're seeing or feeling or responding to is their expression, their art, art history. And then it'll, it'll be replaced and the magazine won't be interesting anymore and it's a completely different editor. And so businesses are like that too, but there are a lot more people involved. And it's kind of a collective expression of, what these people and their culture and their beliefs, and I think it's very much more closer to art than than people think.
2: There's always this question. So I spoke on this podcast as well to she's called Polina Marinova and she runs a Substack. She used to work at Fortune, and we spoke about what is the difference between and anticipating. And this is I'm asking you with your kind of Wired and, and magazine writing hat on here. But what is the difference between or what is the value in anticipating an audience interest? And completely writing about your own interests and following your own curiosities, mm. you might need to always anticipate some level mm-hmm. of, you know, you're not just writing, right? What's your view on that?
1: Yeah, no, it's it's it, that's a really good question. So, um, um, it it's very clear that you need some combination of or intersection of your own interests and in others to make something work at a large scale. You know, anybody can write a newsletter where you're just talking about whatever it is that you're interested in, you don't care about anybody else. And there may be a, a, even a thousand people in the world to do that, but maybe they're not willing to pay or maybe there's a hundred, but it's going to be small. And so that may be sufficient. You know, my my, my theory, the thousand true fans is, 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 is not just that there's, you can get by on a thousand. It's the fact that in a world where we're connected to the entire world of seven billion people, your one in a million weird idea c- can have a thousand possible fans. No matter how strange you are, you, you you are likely to potentially have them. Now, finding them is a different thing, but, but there, there potentially could be an audience of a thousand. Whether they're willing to pay for it, that's another question. So yes, <clears throat> there is there is a sense in which you could make a viable something out of your entirely personal idiosyncratic view and not care about whatever anybody else thought if you are lucky that might intersect with other people there may be a million other people who happen to have exactly sympathy with that and then your your success it could be that they nobody does and i think that's I almost would say that's kind of like luck. That's that's something you can't engineer. It's something you can't determine or or do. So most people probably bend a little bit, whereas like myself, I'm interested in tons and tons of things. Maybe half of them might be of interest to other people, but that's still plenty to work with. And so um, when we were doing Wired, the the instructions that I gave to the writers was um, you're not writing to that imaginary 11th grader that the newspapers tell you about or your grandmother. The audience for this is me. I have read a lot of stuff. I'm easily bored. You've got to amaze me. You're writing to me as an editor. So you're you're going to have to aim up pretty high. Um, And I am making a magazine that I want to read. And I'm not making it for anyone else. I'm making it the magazine that I would like to read. So I want you to report this stuff. I have this thing. Tell me about it because I don't know anything about it. So, um, and don't tell me about what DNA is. I know what DNA is. You don't have to explain it again, or whatever it is. Don't. You're talking to me. So, so it was a very self-centered, um, you know, business in that sense. But at the same time um it wasn't just everything i was interested in it was something we, we knew that other people that i knew that other people wanted to know about as well so there was a there was a combination of just my just what i'm interested in that i actually do know that other people are interested in as well mm-hmm. and you know you're always kind of exploring what is it that so you're trying things out to see what it is, but I would say that it's yeah that it's a um, a balance of trying to navigate through that line where you are serving things that other people wouldn't even think about writing because that's your interest, but at the same time having a hunch or even getting feedback saying yes, I'm really interested in this as well.
2: So would you say if you were giving advice to like a young writer and they were saying, because hey, I think yeah. what you're saying that's interesting is you essentially do kind of need a target audience because you need to have some idea of who you're trying to convince or who you're trying to make this interesting for. Because otherwise, you know, you might just explain DNA because you don't know that, you know, this, the person reading might not understand it.
1: it. It really depends on why you're writing. So, so I have a blog right now. Where I haven't really posted a well. while, but, but if I went back to it, I'm not trying to make money from it. I will just write whatever it is that I feel like writing. Now it may be that there may, it may generate money. I actually posted something the other day and a publication said, Hey, that's great. Can we run it? So a lot of people can write or you can do art without expectations of it turning into money. Um, If you're going out and say, I'm going to do a substack, I'm going to charge money, well, then you're you're in a very different regime. And that may not be the place that I would start. Mm. I would tell people, start blogging and posting and see if anybody is responding to it first. And what are they responding to if that's what your interest is? Start there on a very low level, low risk level. Just post stuff. Does anybody even... Are they paying attention? Does it provoke them? Does it get them excited or angry? Whatever it is. Um, and then you can kind of move from there to see, well, I've got a lot of people and they really respond. Okay, that's that's good. But if, if you're saying, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a writer. And I need to have a sub stack. And I need to charge people. I need to figure out what it is. I don't think that's the way to do it. I think you want to start much more organically and um, see what is motivating you to write. Um, you know, um, it, it may be that again, that you just get the pleasure of writing. So you're going to write and you're going to write something every day and you don't care if anybody's reading it. And I think that has a higher chance of getting you somewhere where you become really interesting. Um, if you just kind of follow that where you are writing for the pleasure of it for yourself this for the process for the, whatever it is, a diary.
2: How did you learn to become a good writer?
1: Well, I'm not so sure I am a good writer, but th- whatever I learned, I learned, um, for me, the transformation was, um, writing online. um, when i was writing in like school and stuff it turned out that i didn't have anything to say so it wasn't until i felt like i had something to share that was an important thing and then secondly i think in the beginning when you're writing i was writing like i thought people should write
2: Mm, which
1: was a horrible model (laughs) but i very early on discovered the online writing and there I was just not writing to impress anybody I was trying to communicate something mm. I was just like and and I wrote fairly telegraphically so it was perfectly suited for this new medium I mean it turned out I didn't know that but, but, but that's what my 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 sympathetic um, natural mode was was more telegraphic and so um so I learned to write online which was simply trying to communicate to other people about something mm. and um my writing kind of is continued that so so I read really good writers, and I worked with great writers. So I write very reluctantly. Um, I write out of desperation. I write to kind of figure out what it is that I'm thinking. I just did a piece that I wrote because I didn't know what I was thought about it. So writing is a way for me to actually think about figure out what I to access my own thoughts about it. so that's cumbersome and painful whereas you know let me give you a dropping a name neil stevenson whom we worked with at wired neil has to write every day or else he he, he's sort of like um oed a little bit he he actually gets physically anxious if he doesn't write some thousand words whatever it is so for for him writing is, is therapeutic he needs to do it that is so unlike me (laughs) it's like you know it's like no i'm forcing myself to to write and it's a painful process because um the words don't flow out and there are each one's a struggle and i'm kind of thinking the question i ask myself every single sentence which is do i really believe that Mm. is that really what i think I just said that, but my, you know, do I re- can I really commit to that? And that's sort of my process.
2: Yeah, because it's so easy to, especially if you you've got some level of practice with writing to just write right. what you think should be written. And and as I say, if, yes. you, if you've got some level of practice and you're not too bad, you can get away with it quite easily. But it's never gonna be amazing writing because it's you know as you say, you're not inquiring right. every every phrase or testing every phrase.
1: Right, right, you, you you I mean, again, what I'm trying to surface is what I truly feel, and that's what of course, what brings value to it is that you're not just repeating a cliche, yeah. but you're actually saying something genuine, and getting to that authentic, genuine part is is difficult. Some people have easier access to it, and others, for me it's it's work.
2: What do you think makes a great story?
1: it has a beginning middle and end i mean it's (laughs) that that's the first thing um what i look for what i read for is clarity and surprise clarity and surprise so if it's clear what's you know what's what's happening or what's understanding so so i tend not to like things that are complete complexity uh, you know perplexing and whatever or, or unclear or vague whatever I like I like clarity meaning not like there's mist not mystery but that it's clear and I like to be surprised by the language what's being said um, you know the, the the author is being contrarian whatever it is there's something surprising about it um, and that's true just for the higher levels of articles of books and movies. I, I prefer to always be surprised and that's what I'm looking for when I assign things as well.
2: I'm arming and oaring whether we talk about a thousand, I'm sure you've talked about it a hundred times. So thinking about, so the other sense of out of hours that the reason I like it as a phrase is, as I said, you know, it's a reminder that we are all running out of hours and something that we don't think about very much. And we think we have infinite time. And it means that we don't often do the things that we actually really would like to do.
1: Right. Yes.
2: What's your experience with that way of thinking? Do you, do you agree with that or do you find it quite easy to just do the things that you want to do?
1: No, I, I, I um I famously made a countdown clock. Yes. Um, <laughs> I love this. That, 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 that um, translates time into days, which I feel gives a sense of urgency and then using actuarial tables for my own age and you know male of a certain age living in a certain place the expected lifespan and and change that into days and, and when you do that it's it's sort of shocking because there aren't that many days so that's that sense of trying to seize the day is 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 very much part of my dna and um i i think um there's a phrase I'm kind of throwing around, which is you know the the right time to do something is usually right now. <laughs> you know, it's like it's like there's very little downside to, to like doing it now. I've never regretted that of like just starting something now. If you have something else that you're interested in, a side project, a hobby, I think they're worth overcoming all the initial procrastinations and other things to do because going back to what we said earlier they're part of this idea of we don't really know what we're good for and it i believe it takes all our life working full time to f- discover what that is as you discover and the closer you come to that the more success and satisfaction you have the reason why you have success is because you're doing something that only you can do that's valuable, which means that you really don't have competition at that point, so it's kind of easier to do and in a certain sense is more natural so 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 that's the state that's the kind of state that you want to get to where where you're not just the best, you're the only getting there though will require a lot of trying things. You, we, there's just nobody born who can see that that mix of particular talents that you have and it requires and some of those talents are very unusual and require kind of some weird experience to kind of uncover them and so part of what you have to be doing all your life is trying different doors and blocks and things to, to, to make sure that you can kind of keep moving towards that. And it's very obscure, very varied. Of course, your own circumstances you're born into, some are more privileged than others, and there's the additional hurdles of that. But that, all that means is that it's even more essential that, that that you try things. And so I think these ideas of the off hours, of doing other kinds of stuff, side things, are to me crucial in... That discovery process. Part of the problem of people who are very successful is that they tend not to do that as much because they're imprisoned by this. Like, well, if I don't if I do that, then I'm not as excellent. I'm my, my brand is excellence. And if I try something new, I'll, there'll be failure. There'll be there'll be will be you know, imperfect work when I don't stand for imperfect work. And so and that's hard. It's really, really hard to get off the track, and also you have fans, and you know it's like Bob Dylan. You're a folk singer; you can't do electric. We won't allow you, and so um, it's it's so much easier to kind of optimize what you already knew rather than head in this direction of doing things where you don't know and you aren't very good, and et cetera. And so, so I think these other kinds of of um, side projects and hobbies and startups are an essential mechanism for that journey what
2: was the most unusual thing that you found out about yourself doing a side project mm. or the project out of hours
1: that's a really good question um i i found out that um I'm not. I'm not very really good at telling stories. Um, I, I worked on this graphic novel for eleven years with some people from Pixar, and their facility, their logic, the way they thought about stories was almost incomprehensible to me. It was like, oh my gosh, how did you arrive? It's like I would never have thought of that in a million years, and I really struggled to try and do it and. While well, I got better at it, it was like, man, I'm just, it's like singing. I, I i can't sing. I knew that I couldn't sing. But this was like, I don't think my brain works in this direction naturally. its It's a huge hurdle. I'm glad I do it. I want to do more of it. I want to become better at it. But man, I am not really built to do this in a kind of, this is not my strength at all. That was, you know, I mean, that was a good thing to know.
2: I think there are lots of people maybe as we get older as well as not just success it's also just age where people kind of you know they think oh, i'm too old to start a new thing or i'm too far gone in this particular field to do something else you i feel do new things all the time so i've mastered this thing of mm-hmm. starting a new project what advice right. would you give if someone was kind of let's say 80 years old and they said to you uh you know i've always
1: 18 you say 18 years old
2: zero eight zero
1: 80 years old okay sorry I I have some friends who are 80, <laughs> okay.
2: Okay. So they say to you, Oh, you know, I I really admire how much interesting stuff you do. I'd love mm-hmm. to do that myself, but I don't think I I'm I'm up for it or I don't think I can. What would you say to them?
1: It's not too late and um Do it with some kids. Do it with some younger people. Um you know, um uh hang around young people more uh, or do a project with, with an 18-year-old. Uh, learn it together. Uh, you may be slower, um, but it'll be more fun. And um, you both have beginner's minds and they can teach you. I, I really like hanging around um, younger people. And that's one of the advantages I have with my kids. It makes it easier to kind of get into that. Beginner mind um, mode with with them because we're we're learning together and you know eighty year old in some ways or regresses a little bit. I think the the real crucial uh, age is like fifty. Someone who's fifty years old that's where you really kind of begin to get stuck a little bit because you have so much riding on your current success that it seems very hard to afford to do anything drastic. I think that's that is a that is a very tough place to be because you may have more responsibilities, you may have young children, you may have a family, you may have a mortgage, whatever it is, and so taking a chance and a risk and going with something new is it is a lot to ask, um, someone who is successful. That's why I think this idea of of doing something as a hobby, as 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 a secondary thing, that's not your day job is very, 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 very powerful. It, you know, we, we have enough time in generally in our society where where you can devote something to it some meaningful amount of time. I, I, it would baffle me why people would not be doing <laughs> at least two or three other things. And, and by the way, the VCs, Mark Andreessen famously, says that one of his best ways for investment was to talk to successful people and, and ask them about their hobbies what they're doing in their free time. And he said nine times out of 10, that was a signal for somewhere where they should be looking for investment because successful people often had very interesting side things that they were about that were not about money.
2: Mm.
1: So they weren't monetized. So they were kind of pre- seed stage they were interesting enough to capture their attention but not developed enough to actually make it on the horizon and so um that's a question i ask people um, a lot now it's like okay what do you do in your free time what's and the the answers are very illuminating in terms of as a signal of where things are going
2: interesting because they're interesting enough that people are willing to make time to do them
1: right and you know and i like the you know like the early drone stuff was all hobby Mm. people there was no business it was not they didn't again they didn't they were toys they didn't work very well they they were unclear in terms of the regulation there was no money being made Mm. but it was like well the, the People are putting a lot of time here. There's something going on here. Mm. I and mean, that's exactly what happened.
2: So I want to ask you about Vanishing Asia, which is, I would say chronologically, it's your most recent side project. Is that fair to say?
1: It is, but it's been 50 years. I've been working on it for 50 years. So it's a 50-year passion project. And it kind of illuminates a little bit of what you're saying. But just to describe it to people, it's um, it's three volumes three oversized volumes of about 1,080 pages in total in one subcover case. And it's um, about the vanishing tradition, celebrations, costumes, architecture of Asia as defined between Turkey and Japan and Siberia and Papua New Guinea in the south. And so it's all of Asia. And I was roaming in the back remote areas of 35 Asian countries over 50 years, photographing people and their their disappearing culture. And I put it all together into this books, which was kickstarted and is actually finished, but is stuck on a dock somewhere in Turkey because there's no shipping containers to move them. There are 9,000 images that I selected out of the quarter, half million that I took and over fifty years, and I began in the early '70s when I first um, dropped out of college and went to Asia uh, using film. So I've used all kinds of cameras, and I've never used a state-of-the-art cam- professional cameras. I've always used amateur, cheap amateur cameras, and I funded the whole thing myself. And so, what it is now, it's a kind of a catalog of otherness and differences, and how do how people of the past have done things because it's kind of like a time machine. I made it for an audience of one. My feeling was if I had one copy of this book, then I'm happy. But since I'm making one for myself, I'm going to make a bunch of others. And if anybody else wants one, I'll make it for this. So I had the Kickstarter. It was like, okay, I'll print as many as people want right now. And that's what we're doing. So there's really, there's no commercial interests. there's no people on twitter demanding in the past 50 years saying we need more pictures of old asia there's no there's you know the amount of money i spent in doing it there was there's no economic reason for me to do this it was a total compulsion uh, that's it was almost like an addiction but it's closer to a compulsion where i just had to do it and i had to travel and i just i was compelled to do it. It's kind of a weird thing to describe that compulsion to do this and define this stuff and to put it together. So um, it's a passion project. It's completely the fact that I wanted to do it for myself. And that's, I've printed up extra copies for other people to enjoy, which nobody's really seen yet because the books have not moved. But um, um I've been publishing stuff online, uh, images from it. It's not quite the same. So, who knows whether or not it works on others, but it doesn't matter because I love the one copy that I have right now, and if nobody else liked it, it wouldn't I don't care. I simply don't care.
2: What I think's so really funny about it is that you're considered by so many people as like a futurist. You know, I saw uh-huh. that you're a futurist advisor for the Steven Spielberg film Minority.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And
2: it's like this is your thing, and you know, you've worked at Wired. You you were founding editor of Wired. It's like, and then this is like the complete opposite, which is you know to look at traditions and to look at you know things of the past. And why was it such a compulsion?
1: Yeah, it's it's a fair question. There's one level. In which every, the better the all, all, the best futurists that I know are really great historians, and I myself hated history in high school, but I have really come to like reading history, and the I feel that the only way we can kind of look forward is to see where we're coming from the past, so there were there was that which was an element, so I firmly the, the reasons why I went and finished this book was my business shifted after wired to giving talks about what's the next technology in asia so i spent a lot of time in asia and i absolutely firmly believe that the next century the coming century is the asian century that the center of the world's culture will move to asia i mean look at the Dramas coming out of Korea, all the cultural stuff out of this little tiny country, Korea. So, we're going to, it's going to move. The center of, of gravity of culture is going to move, and innovation is going to move to Asia. But to understand that, you have to kind of see where it's coming from, where Asia is coming from, because that's going to dictate a lot about where they're going. And it's a very rich, diverse, culture so there's i think there's more difference between korean culture and turkish culture as, as there is between korean culture and u.s so there's there, there there there's um there's huge otherness within asia itself and so um so so, so for, for that's one thing the reason why i had this this compulsion to look at asia was my feeling that it was the future and i wanted to see where it was going to go by looking at what was happening there the second one was a simply an aesthetic an aesthetic appreciation of the beauty of it and as a photographer as a artist person that beauty was just so compelling and then I, I felt it was going away so I, there was this idea of trying to Trying to capture it before it disappeared, like seeing uh, I don't know a whole woods full of twinkling lightning bugs, and it's like you gotta see this it's gonna it's gonna go away, and so um there was that, and then there was you know I don't collect things i don't i i I don't have that collector kind of gene where you know I collect cars or whatever it is, baseball cards or whatever but i I had this collecting um, mania about this stuff, where the fact that there was this other mm, festival going on, and I knew it was going to go on, and there weren't going to be anybody there photographing, and it may not go on very much. It was like, I have to be there. <laughs> I have to add that. It's going to be part of my collection. Um, I, I, the, there was a sense of being incomplete, you know, that, 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 the, that, sense that drives collectors crazy where they don't have the complete collection. Well, there was this completest aspect that I don't have the rest of my life that I have there. So, um, there was some of that as well, as well, which is, you know, driving me to these, um, very obscure places because I needed to complete the collection, um, so having said that I'm I'm really glad that I got this kind of done before covid or during covid because since then I have my my urge to travel has completely evaporated. I have I don't it's just gone. It's like I'm being cured of something. And so um, I haven't been anywhere in in 2 years. My last trip was in China in October of 2019. So so uh, maybe I'm I'm fine with it because there is this book that kind of documents that 50 years of being in the back of a bus, um, not knowing where I was going, hoping that there was something interesting at the end of the road.
2: You don't have that collection gene with anything else?
1: No, I don't.
2: That's strange.
1: I, I don't. I don't have um, – no, it's really kind of weird. I'm not a sports Guy, I don't, I don't have any of that I don't have any other collections.
2: Mm. And you know, you were saying that you think life is kind of about discovering, doing a bunch of stuff, and kind of discovering what you're here to do. Do you feel clarity over that now?
1: I, I, I do. I do. And it's not a single, it's not a single thing. Like I think what I found myself really good at is I, well. I am very good at systems thinking a, a generalization at the systems level. My memory is sufficiently bad that I forget the details, but I remember the large scale thing. So that works in my favor. And for some for some reason I have a a good sense, a, a good spidey detection sense of where things are happening. And and, and by, by the way, that's true. When I was photographing, I would say I have, a, I have one of the weirdest skills in the world, which is I could be, I could land in any city, in any place in the world. And I could tell you whether, and I could make my way to the place where something was happening in some part of the city. And I, you know, there was an event or something and I would know. and And it was like, You know how these Polynesian navigators would navigate through the Pacific by looking at the, there would be different kind of three or four waves going across and they would be able to tell what these waves are and, and which direction they were going. Well, I can look at a city and I can just tell that there's a general, more people are going to the north by a fraction of a percent more than they are going to the south and if there's something happening there or there's these little posters or I don't know what it is but I can say there's something happening over that part of town and I'm going to head over there and as I'll hone in on some event and so um I have a similar sense about the culture at large being able to detect that there's something bubbling here that seems like it might be significant or interesting and I don't know what it is, but it is something that I work on, trying to cultivate and hone and exercise.
2: Do You invest feels like a good skill for investing.
1: I don't. Uh, I, I well, we have majority of our stock uh, is in index funds. Hmm. It would. I I I I probably could have, but the thing about it is, is I'm totally bored by money.
2: Right, right. I thought that might I be just right.
1: don't find it. <laughs> I just don't find it interesting. I just don't I'm just not trying to optimize it, which is what you have to do when you're investing professionally. And so um I I'm interested in trying to optimize possibilities and opportunities. And that's where my whole cool tools, whole earth catalog thing, I call it a catalog of possibilities. What I'm trying to increase in the world and communicate to the world is the possibilities that we have, like the possibilities that all your listeners have, which is like a million times more possibilities than that, that than I had when I was growing up. There are just so many more and we don't recognize those opportunities and possibilities that are accessible to us. And part of what I feel my job is, is to kind of make them visible to, to, communicate that yes you you can start your own business you can you can um, repair your own door handle on the car you can travel around the world and visit tibetan monasteries whatever it is i mean there was this this, uh very classic um i think it was a from a movie maybe it was wall street i can't remember but there was this wall street broker guy young guy and his dream was, is I'm going to work on Wall Street to make like a million dollars so I can then buy a motorcycle and ride right across China. And, and so many of our travelers, that's just hilarious. Because you don't need a million dollars to buy a motorcycle. <laughs> you need maybe $300 or maybe $500. You could buy a motorcycle in China for almost nothing. And you can start to go across, it would cost you maybe a couple hundred dollars. and fees for you know rooms i mean you need almost nothing to do that you don't need to work on wall street for a a year to make a million dollars to do it Mm. and so um those possibilities are available so many possibilities to almost anybody if, if they knew that they were there so that's sort of what my job is is to kind of communicate that that catalog of possibilities
2: if you take the motorcycle person, because I think it's a metaphor for most people, which is they'll go, oh, I'll do a few years in this job, and then I'll follow my dream, or then I'll right, the dream, right, right. like that I that I've been interested in. A lot of people have that, and I guess it's a delay tactic, or there is a fear of fear of really, I don't know. Actually, I guess one question is what's the fear, and then the second question is again, how how have you found, how did you kind of overcome that, or did you never have that? I never had the
1: hesitation. I um, at one point I wanted to see America, and I had you know I had no money, so I bought a bicycle, a cheap the cheapest bicycle I could buy. I had five hundred dollars, I think, and I rode a, I rode my bicycle across the U.S. from San Francisco to New York in three months, and I think I spent no more than five hundred dollars that's an amazing adventure ride a bicycle across the u.s it costs almost nothing it was a lot of time but i had time at that time uh it's open to anybody i mean anybody today you're only, you're only, you only your only you could buy it you could probably buy a used bicycle almost anywhere your only expenses i was camping the whole way living in a little tent to head on the back of my bike and was living out for grocery stores I would go into grocery stores and buy my food how how could you not afford that and you would have <laughs> you would have the experience of riding a bicycle across the, a continent if you rehearse the downsides what's the worst that could possibly happen it's not so bad it really isn't. What I mean, the worst, maybe you didn't finish and you had to take a bus back or something, but it's it's the worst of what could happen is it's so minimal compared to the upside of what you would gain from it.
2: I think there's two things, though. I think one is potentially the more privileged um, person would say, oh, I'm worried about a gap in my CV or, you know, Ex- I, do, I think it's a genuine thing. You know, you know what will, I, what will uh-huh. that look like? And then I think that you need a certain level of privilege to be able to take, to feel comfortable in taking out that time and not earning money and, and saving it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know. My parents never gave me any money. I Again, I was resigned to the fact that I wasn't going to have enough money. I would I worked in a warehouse to make the $500. Mm. I lived at home. I paid my parents rent. I, I, I think most people... Could afford five hundred dollars for three. If, if that's all you were going to spend for three months, and and you know maybe it's, maybe it's not even three months if that was a, a a real issue. But um, yeah. So so I certainly didn't have a career that I was concerned about a like, gap in my CV. Edit. I, was... I really
2: think it's a thing because
1: <laughs> I, because it's
2: kind of like taking. It's like when people take time out to look after kids, you know, whether a mother or father, whatever.
1: Yeah, yeah. They have
2: that fear of okay, life's moving on, and you know, and I think it's just a gap away from your work. I think does cause anxiety for people. I do think so.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's possible. But <laughs> I guess the thing is, I've never felt that in part because I, I I was not expecting a career, or I don't think of myself as a career or in career. I I, I work in projects. Mm. I work from one project to another project. So I have a project oriented life and. My friend, Stuart Brand, who also had a project-oriented life, said that each project is five years from the moment you think of it to the moment you stop thinking about it forever. And um, then he was very judicious in terms of saying, well, I have only, you know, he's 85. He says, I only have a very limited number of five-year projects left. Mm. Um, But I began, he began thinking about those, and I began thinking about them in my 50s. I was like, okay, there's, there's, um, there's only a limited number of of projects um, that we can do in five years uh, over over time. Um, So, uh, so I have a project sequence rather than a career.
2: What's your next five year project?
1: Yeah. So I would like to become a YouTube star. Really? Yes. (laughs) I want, I want, no, that's a very, uh, flamboyant a bombastic way of saying I, I'm, I'm trying to do youtube i but so so one of the things we've seen in um my cool tools website recommendo all this my little tiny media kingdom here is that they the, the the audience is kind of going flat or decreasing except in video video is still an expanding audience. And I think we're still at the very beginnings of what that media will do. And I am just amazed and astounded and awed by the uh, the value that YouTube is doing. I think it's completely underrated and underappreciated in terms of its uh, role in the accelerant of culture. And so I, sp- I spent a huge amount of my discretionary time watching YouTube. I'm trying to figure out my voice what what my role in the YouTube verse is, and um, I can write a story. I can make a book. I make several books a year. Besides the Vanishing Age. every year I make a couple books, private books. Usually, I can write a story. I can do that without trouble. But for me, editing videos, I it's tough. It's I'm not. I, I haven't mastered it yet, and so doing the editing and everything. I have filmed a lot, but just getting them out is, is, and I'm really having to kind of push myself to do it. So, um, but, and that's just making um, maker type, you know, workshop kind of stuff. But I want to expand in that into the more complicated ideas realm where, where you're dealing with complicated, sophisticated ideas. So instead of writing a book about the future, I want to do some videos about it. And so that's sort of where I want to go. It basically is saying uh, I, I, I want to do things video first and then a book can come out of it or a podcast. But video first is sort of what I'm committing to in the next five years because that's the center of the culture. The center of the culture has moved away from books. My kids don't read books. Their friends don't read books. They watch YouTube. I want to be where the action is. This The culture has moved to the screen, moving images. That's where I want to go.
2: All right. We'll end there because I've already taken an hour and a half of your time.
1: And we're on video.
2: And we're on video. I know. <laughs> can you believe it? If I'd known that was your ambition, I would have – I mean, we've now got the video, so we can always turn it into something. And if people want to buy Vanishing Asia, can they?
1: Yes. So Vanishing Asia is now available on Amazon. Three books, 27 pounds of otherness. It's a thousand something pages. It will take you a day just to page through it without reading any of the captions. And it was quite a trip. And Let me tell you, uh, I am so proud of it. I'd love it. Again, I will sometimes sneak in late at night and just go through it myself just for, for the pure joy of the bookmaking. So it's unlike any other book, I have a wall of, I'm in a library, two story library right now, and I have um, a wall of, this is my studio. This is amazing. Well, there's a glass catwalk and there's a library below it, but I have a wall of photo books from Asia, photo books, art books. And there's no book like this. There's no other book like this at all with 9,000 images in it. Nothing.
2: Thanks so much for speaking. It was amazing.
1: Well, it was was a pleasure. Um, I really enjoyed it. I I enjoyed your questions and um, what you're trying to do. I hope I was helpful.
0: Thanks for listening to the Out of Hours podcast. Remember to subscribe on your podcast player so you don't miss the next episode from the next season. And if you want to stay in touch, then why not sign up to the Out of Hours substack? It's linked in the show notes.